Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. And this is a really fucking great episode of The Ezra Klein Show. I'm really excited for you to get to listen to it. I got to sit down with Trevor Noah of The Daily Show. I almost feel like he's one of these folks who needs no introduction. But if you don't know, he doesn't just host The Daily Show. He is one of the smartest, most interesting comics, uh, I'd say easily, of the last decade. And while I'm not an expert, I, I, I love comedy enough to say that. I think with some with some clarity. His background is really interesting, too. He grew up in apartheid South Africa. He is the son of a white father and a black mother. And that was illegal at the time. If people had found out his background, he would have been taken away from his parents and taken to an orphanage. He was only able to see his father once a week. He lived a very strange life for a very long time. Later on, he had some other problems. He had an abusive stepfather. His mother was shot in the head by him. He's just a fascinating guy. And this is not a particularly funny interview. He is a very funny guy. He makes a couple good jokes, but this is a pretty serious interview about race, about comedy, about the media, about how race interacts differently in America than in other countries he's been to. It is a lot of international touring. There are parts of this discussion that were really eye-opening. I think a particular talent he has as a comedian and as a thinker is figuring out ways to present his experience and, and broadly unexperienced in such a way that if it's not your experience, you can find and feel an unusual level of empathy for it. And, and I certainly felt that throughout this discussion. As always, I have three requests for you if, if you are a fan of the show. The first is to share it. Please go on Facebook. Please go on Twitter. It really means a lot to me when you take the time to do this. So, so if you have done it in the past or you are going to do it now, genuinely, thank you. My second request is to listen. If you are a fan of the show, I think you will really like the other podcast I'm a part of, The Weeds, where I talk every week with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff about the hottest policy topics around. We get very deep into things like healthcare and inequality and economics. The final request I have is to email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. I actually read this myself. There's no intern with access to the email account. And I really appreciate it. I appreciate the feedback and I really appreciate the guest suggestions. A lot of the guests who've come on the show have been people I got the idea to talk to from all of you. With that said, here is a very interesting, serious discussion with a very funny man, Trevor Noah. 
Thank you for doing this. Thank you, man. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have you in here. I'm a big fan, both of of your Daily Show and of your comedy before that. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm a huge fan of Vox. It's uh, one of the most useful tools in getting uh, a grip on, I guess, a lot of the madness that is happening right now. Thank you. We think of ourselves as a tool for getting a grip on madness. That's going to be our our, our new tagline. I like that. I saw you writing a book. I am. I've, I've been writing it for a while, though. I guess The Daily Show actually made me put the book on hold. It's just a collection of stories, you know, from life. So I don't think of it as a memoir because memoir always feels like you, you're done with life. So it's just like, <laughs> it's just me um, writing a, a few stories, how they pertain to the world today. And, you know, growing up in apartheid South Africa with my mom, living in a post-racial society that was, you know, forged through racism. Just, yeah, stories that take us through, through life. What is it, what do you mean when you say a post-racial society? Well, you know that's that's what uh, South Africa aspired to. It's sort of the same thing, same thing America has aspired to, is that whole like oh now we're in a post-racial society. You know, essentially South Africa has to a certain extent done that. I always say the ism after racism is normally classism, which is what you should aspire to, and then you figure out how to get rid of that. But you know, it's moving to a place where most of your issues are not pinned back to race, I would say, if that's the word I'm looking for, but just can, cannot be traced back. You know, like like right now in, in America, a lot of the issues really do center in and around race. And I think in South Africa, over time, it became less and less about that. We're still dealing with the effects of that government, but it's becoming less and less about that. Now it's more about income and inequality. It's so interesting the way you say over time there, because apartheid ends in South Africa, is both more extreme in South Africa and ends in South Africa much later than Jim Crow. So it doesn't it doesn't seem intuitive that you would have a quicker path to a society where these issues did not pin back to race. But your impression is that South Africa did. Well, I think we are. I think we are moving faster. Yeah, I think there's a there's there's a, there's a variety of factors as well. I mean, like one of those factors is the fact that we had a, a truth and reconciliation commission. You know, we sat down as a country. We had to come to you know grips with everything that had been done during the most oppressive time in our history. So it was the oppressors and the oppressed sitting in a room together with the whole country watching and talking through everything that had happened. And it wasn't about punishing the people. It was about exactly that, what the name suggests, truth and reconciliation. Because what really happened was it left us in a place where no one could deny what had happened. No one could deny how we had gotten to this place. And that was a really important part of our history because what it means is you don't have anyone who can deny it. We don't have deniers in South Africa. You still have a few that are extreme, you know, people who are like, oh, apartheid wasn't that bad. But no one no one suffers from that illusion. I see that in America where people ask questions like, oh, is slavery that bad? And does slavery really have effects? And what is the worst thing that happened? There are some people who don't even believe half of the stories of, of lynching or even police brutality. It's still uh, an issue of, oh, I don't know if that's all true. And uh, and I think the Truth and Reconciliation Commission really helped us do that. So we've progressed. And I mean, don't forget, we're also, you know, it's a different country in that black people are the majority. So the minority was oppressing the majority as opposed to um, America's history. So I'm going to expose the vast acreage of my ignorance here and say that I don't know that much, actually. I just realized talking to you about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So when you say that everybody was watching... What were they watching? Were you watching this on television as yeah. a, as a kid? Yeah. yeah, it was it was it was basically more than news. It was like the biggest conference that the country had to watch. It was on primetime television. Imagine if um 
Americans sat down and said, we are going to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I mean, if you could, you would sit down with all of those who had instigated slavery or who had, who had run it, all of those who had implemented Jim Crow, all of the people that ran police departments where they specifically set out to abuse minorities, groups that, you know, like you, you sat down with those people, even groups from white extremist organizations like the KKK, and you sat with them and said, listen, whatever you say now will not be held against you. If you tell the complete truth, it will in essence be forgiven, but the truth will be out there. Everyone will know what has happened and you talk through it. People will talk about how they set up housing to make sure that black people couldn't live in good areas. They set it, set it up so that loans wouldn't be given to people of color. They set it up so that police departments would specifically target people of color for infractions that didn't exist. And that's what you'd have to do as a country. And everyone would be watching that. And because it is the perpetrators who are confessing and there is no, there really is no reason to lie because there is no ramification. You, you, you know, the truth is, is what essentially sets you free. And that's, that's what we had to do. How was it decided who would end up speaking on television? Well, it was all the people that were, I guess, accused of crimes, you know, so it was different police commanders. It was people from the special branches. It was secret police. It was anyone that was involved in any form of apartheid, any, anyone that was involved in what they had done during those years was, was had to come out and speak. And it was a long process. People cried. I mean, I remember my parents, myself, we just sat there crying every single day, listening to the stories of what they did to people. How old were you? Wow. I was young at the time. Let me think. If I was, if I was 10, 11 years old, maybe. Yeah. Somewhere there. And how conscious of these currents in your society were you? I mean, I know the situation which you grew up was unusual, I think, to say the least. I mean, did this come as a surprise to you or was it things you already knew and now you were just seeing them admitted on television? I didn't know the details. I didn't know the extent to which people had gone to exercise their racism. You know of stories these things are bandied about, but when you hear it, when a person is, is telling you in graphic detail how they did what they did, it hits home in a completely different way. And sometimes even for the person who is telling the story, you realize that you see the person, I guess, coming to grips with what they have done and acknowledging that and telling it to the families, telling it to the community that they hurt and, uh, on all sides, it's extremely painful, but that's that's what we had to do. Is there a story you remember striking you with particular force? There was one in particular where one of the police, I don't know if he was a commander, I don't, I don't know what level he was in the police force, but he told a story of how he would train his dogs on actual black people that had been arrested. And so he, he would get the dogs to basically eat the black people in front of him. You know, he would set them loose in a field and they had to run and then the dogs had to chase them down. It was like, you know, like Ramsey Bolton from Game of Thrones. <laughs> and and just the way he talked about this and the way they couldn't defend themselves. And, you know, if, if, if the, the person who was trying to escape would try and fight the dog, then he would beat them or he would shoot them. And just the the repeating of this over and over and over again. And that's how they trained their dogs. I remember that story stuck with me 
because the imagery is something I could almost see. I, I almost feel like I saw the, the actual event taking place because of the graphic detail in which he described everything. How does that affect as a kid your view of what human beings are capable of? Your, your view of whether people are fundamentally decent? I don't know. I think maybe as a kid, it's a, it's a good time to hear it, you know? <laughs> it's strange because I, I think as, as, as kids, you work within the world that you think is most normal. So whatever you're told as a child is what you perceive to be normal. So in my world, I just accepted that as part of my reality. There were some bad people out there who did very bad things. And so that, that just served as I wasn't shocked. I wasn't, you know, I was just like, okay, so this is part of life. You grew up in a situation where you're the child of a black mother and a white father. Yeah? yeah. And you had to basically hide that because it was illegal. Yes. Well, they, they hit it. They I didn't know what was going on. Were people kind to you growing up? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, where there is, where there is a lot of hatred, you will find, I believe, an equal, if not a higher measure of love. Um, and so... I had that on all sides. I mean, I had a lot of people who were weirded out by me, I think. They weren't mean, but they didn't understand how I came to be. You know, they didn't understand how my mother was my mother. She has this black woman. How has she given birth to what many people thought was a white kid? In my neighborhood where I grew up, there were people who had never seen a white person up close. And so they thought that I was white. And I'd spent most of my formative years trying to explain to kids that I wasn't a white person. But people were welcoming. People... Good people are good people at the end of the day. So I was lucky in that I don't remember living in a world where I was ostracized because of that. It was just my parents who had to deal with a world where my mom at times had to act like she wasn't my mom. And then, you know, my dad couldn't be seen with me in public at all. That would have just given everything away. What was it like for you after your family could reunite? It's funny because it, it it's like you get used to the other way of living. So if if anything, I... I just grew up in a world where I saw my dad maybe once a week and only in a house. And that's like a a normal thing, you know? And then the same thing happens with your mom. You, you're just used to living with her in a certain way. So when you reunite, it's not as if you immediately switch and, and live life in a different way. It is... It is almost as if you have been... You've been kidnapped. And so... Just because you're free doesn't mean you run out into the streets. Now you find you're going to spend a lot of time indoors because you still feel, I guess, most comfortable in a confined space. And so we continued living the way we had lived before. You know, just over time, it's with increasing freedom, you know, over time you start to become a lot more liberal in the way you express your affection for each other in public. But um, but initially there's nothing changes. And when did you leave South Africa? How old were you? Well, I, I only left when I was in my late 20s, I guess. I've never left the country. I mean, I've only now recently switched over to the US and that was, that was a year ago. But before that, I've, I've always lived in South Africa. And if I, if I read this right, you, you left after a confrontation with your stepfather? No, that was tabloid. Oh, that was, was tabloid. Yeah, that was completely tabloid. Oh, the that was full of shit. Yeah, that was tabloid. <laughs> trying to, I mean, it's you know what's what's crazy to me is I always go fact is stranger than fiction, and I mean I thought to live in a world where my my mother and I lived in an abusive household where my stepfather was an alcoholic and and you know it culminated in him shooting her in the head. You would think that that in itself would be a story that's crazy, but I guess the tabloids feel the need to ramp it up, so they were like, oh he. 
he fled to another country and, and that's not true. It is very hard to correct incorrect information about yourself on, on the internet. For a long time, I had on my Wikipedia, it, was some, it wasn't a huge fact about me, it was, <laughs> it, was a wrong, it was a very wrong fact about me, and I tried to correct it. What, was, it, what was the fact? I think it was which I had been rejected from my school student newspaper at UC Santa Cruz, <laughs> and they said this happened at another college. And so I went in, and I was like, nope, that, that's not how that happened. It's not, it wasn't at UCLA, it was at UC Santa Cruz. But it turned out that some... It had been published about me that this happened at, at UCLA in some magazine. That's so And so funny. I am considered by the rules of Wikipedia not an authoritative source on my own life. That I need so an funny. actual like legitimate news source. So it wasn't until years later when I got interviewed or something and I just really awkwardly shoehorned in this information about Santa Cruz so I that could stop so funny. I could stop smearing UCLA on the internet. Yeah, the, the internet the internet never forgets even uh, things that it should have never remembered in the first place. Do you, do you follow any of the stuff in Europe about trying to create a right to be forgotten on the internet? I do. I do follow that. It's an what, interesting conversation. What do you it really think of is. That? I think it has its merits. I, I think it is a tough conversation to have, but it, it does have its merits because if we are living in a world where anything can be written about you and there is no... Uh, you know, there is no accountability, then what do you as a citizen or just an average Joe in the street, what do you have as your, as your tool? You know, and I understand on one side, people are going, yes, but you have people who've committed crimes or you have sex offenders or you have, you have that. And I go, yes, but we also have to acknowledge in society that we do have punishments for these things. And once people have served their time, do they carry that with them forever now? Is that is that now, is that the scarlet that taints them for the rest of their lives? Because I think that's part of the problem in society is once someone has committed a crime, we don't, we don't let them come back into society. So in essence, every sentence is a life sentence sometimes. And yes, you know, you do want to have security for the people that may encounter them later in life, but you also don't want to create a situation where a, what you have done and maybe been punished for is never forgotten, or B, what you never did, you continue to get punished for because the internet just refuses to to let you go. So it's a conversation where I don't know that there's a complete right answer, but I understand where, where the, the right to be forgotten people are coming from. So this is a thought I've been toying with and and I've not I I do not believe I'm going to express it clearly, so so bear with me. But yes. the internet is a it is a place that remembers and exposes your shames. And the thing it feels to me like it is revealing is the when I watch how people survive or don't survive their scandals, uh -huh. it has weaponized people's feeling of shame. And I think about Donald Trump in this context a lot because he has repeatedly said things that for any normal politician who would react to these revelations with yep. shame and upset, they would shrink. People would pick up on their weakness. Yes. Other members of their party would denounce them. They would they would fall apart. Other politicians cannot survive the things Donald Trump says. And it seems to me what he is showing is that if you are willing to operate without shame, then you can kind of expose a 
flaw in the way that the modern sort of internet economy works to some degree a, a sometimes beneficial even way the modern internet and, and media economy works yeah. but that there's something about what he has figured out that seems very interesting to me it's like we bred it's like we are watching a human being evolve in real time to be <laughs> immune to the particular threats of his ecosystem i don't know if it's evolved because that would imply progress i think <laughs> I think if anything, it's funny you say that because I, I, I always say in the office, Donald Trump has shown that all you need to do to weather any of these storms is to be shameless. Because essentially that that is all it takes. If you have no shame, yourself as Ezra, the reason you went after those that Wikipedia article is because you, you felt a certain amount of shame. You were like, I was not kicked out. I was not, uh, this is not a true well, story. Well, I was, about me. it was is, just a different from a different place. Yes. Yeah. I definitely so like, was rejected. But it's like, yeah, but I want to correct where it was from. And this is, a, you know, but, but if you are shameless, you don't care what people say about you, true or false, because there is absolutely nothing that gets to you because you exist in a vacuum. You, your echo chamber is your own mind. The reason you cannot pin Donald Trump down is because you're still trying to pin him down on a scandal that just happened. He creates another one tomorrow. He creates another one. Most politicians and most people, if they create a scandal today, they spend the next few weeks on damage control. So Hillary, I mean, you look at her world, you go, what, you've got Benghazi and you've got the emails. If she was Trump, she would have just added something else to that and she would have added something else. And then by the time you're bringing it up, you don't even know where to start. I mean, you do realize we're in a world where... We haven't even finished talking about Donald Trump's wall. <laughs> we haven't even finished. I don't know how we got to the place where we are now on to the next step, which is now Trump Pence and what is going on in his world and what he's saying about the Muslim ban and, and so on and so forth. We have completely, completely had to abandon just the wall. It has become accepted as this policy idea that will happen somehow in some world because he's forced us to move on. His taxes, other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg bringing it up, his, his taxes just became a thing that's disappeared because he's shameless. He's not afraid. You know what I think that comes from with Donald Trump is coming from a world of declaring bankruptcy. You know, when you declare bankruptcy, you have to... You, you get over being shameless. I feel like a lot of business people tell me you, your world comes crumbling down. You have to say, I have no money. You have to say, I'm bankrupt. I cannot pay my debtors. And you are shamed in front of everybody. But then you pick yourself back up and you get back into business and you do it again. And then you're ashamed again. And at some point you go, oh, I don't care. I don't care what you think about whether I'm bankrupt or not. I, This is what I do. And I think that is what has strengthened him. He's brought that from his world into the world of politics, and no one has ever seen that before because most people are career politicians. I don't know where it comes from. I think that's a great question. And to some degree, because it is so – my dominant emotion at any given moment is shame. I'm, I'm Jewish. <laughs> I mostly am thinking about what I'm ashamed about if you, if you catch me on the street. So I, I literally – I look at him and I literally could not physically bear what he doesn't even seem to mind. Yes. But there's something about what he has done to take the lessons of reality television and apply them to a presidential yes. campaign that I think is truly profound. You, I saw you gave an interview where you compared him to Richard Hatch, who's the original winner of Survivor. Yep. And like going all the way back to that first season of Survivor, the rules of reality television are not – 
make people like you. They no. keep the camera on you. They're being yep. memorable. They're be the person people have the strongest feelings about. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like Donald Trump's whole presidential campaign can almost literally be summed up under I'm not here to make friends. That is the main thing you need to know about him. And it has really worked like he was actually right presidential campaigns are in the modern era a form of reality show yeah, and yeah. A- applying reality show lessons to them well, is actually well, think, will let you win well i think the american model is that particularly you know i i've been shocked by how much americans want to like their president it's a very strange thing to see when you travel the world you realize that being liked and being a good president are two totally different things. You know, Angela Merkel in Germany, like I'm, I can't speak for all Germans, but I, I go to Germany quite a bit. I have German family, German friends. People aren't enthused by her, but they like her as a president. They go like, she is a good president for us. You look at England when, when they have their leaders, they may not like the person that is running their country but they like the fact that they have the ability to run the country. And yet in America, there's, would you have a beer with this person? Can they eat my food? Can they make me like them? I care less about what they are planning to do. I care more about how they feel and how they make me feel about them. And that is a very dangerous place to be in because essentially America is electing a mascot and not a president. And sometimes you're lucky because the two come together. You know, in the case of, let's say, Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, you you have people where they are as charming as they are adept. But then you get Donald Trump who goes, I'm just completely going to play into the world of mascot and I can still get as far. There's an interesting theory. I've heard people advance on this and I'm not sure I totally buy it. But that in a lot of other countries, we have separated the head of state and the head of government. England has the queen. Yes. And she has corgis. And there's like pageantry and mm-hmm, people do big mm-hmm, photo spreads. Mm-hmm. And there's Prince William and he's got a kid. And now we've now exhausted my knowledge of the royal family. <laughs> and, and then there are on the other side, a bunch of people completely fucking up the British government at the moment. But yes. they are the least selected for a plausibly relevant set of skills. And that is something I've heard... Uh, people smarter than me argue, is that by combining, whether we intended to or not, by combining those jobs into the single job of the presidency, we created a situation where we were simultaneously looking constantly for a symbol and a prime minister. Yeah, I think that's true to a certain extent. I think it's the celebrity that surrounds your, your president, just in general. What dogs does your president have? What are the names of your president's dogs and the president's kids? And I didn't even know that Angela Merkel had a husband. (laughs) I didn't know who he is. I don't know what he looks like. I don't know. I know nothing about his world. And yet I know she's one of the most powerful leaders in the world. Vladimir Putin, I see every day. I do not know anything about his personal life. I only see, I know he rides horses topless, but I don't know anything else about him. It's a different culture for me, I feel. And part of that just comes from the way the campaign is driven, the way people are taught to choose their candidate is the person that is the most liked combined with who the people feel can best do the job. But then then we we both want someone we will like and by imbuing that much hope in them become immediately disappointed. Oh, yeah, definitely. And and they become someone we don't like. This is actually a good segue to something I wanted to, to chat with you about, which is... 
Obama's presidency, I think at this moment, looking, you know, now we're more or less looking back at it. It's not to Uh say it doesn't have important chapters left to close, but where most of it has elapsed. It begins in such a place of optimism. Yes. And actually, I think, you know, by any measure, a tremendous amount does get done. But particularly on America's racial politics, its racial conversation, the idea that it was going to usher in a post-racial era was exactly backwards. It actually has, and you see this in a lot of polling, heightened a lot of particularly partisan tensions around racial issues. I'm curious how you read that story of, of Obama's presidency, what Obama's presidency did to the conversation about race in this country. It's, it's difficult to pin it down to one thing. And I, you know, I would, uh, I would be remiss if I just came in and said, this is what it is. What I do believe in. You're never going to make it as a pundit. Yeah. I hope I don't every day. I hope (laughs) I, I'm like, will I be a good pundit? If it's no, then I'm doing, I'm doing things well. I do know this though. You cannot deny a certain level of backlash that comes, and and this is not just from a conservative side, but from people who believe, they truly do believe that they are for change, that they are for diversity, that they are for, you know, a more integrated society. But when it happens, there is a visceral reaction within them that they cannot deny. And I feel like Obama did that with the country. Everyone was was happy. Everyone was like, "Yeah, this is great. This is good." And but you cannot you cannot remove the backlash to his blackness playing a role in the country. It, it's always a part of the conversation. It, it is always something that is added on. It's like president and black made this decision and black. He said this thing and black. He was dancing at this event and black. You you you, you get what I'm saying and. It's a tough place to be in, but you, you, you realize that sometimes even the people that said they were ready weren't actually ready. And I think it's good that you do it because you have to do things when you're not ready. Because a lot of the time as people, we're never ready. We're never ready to have kids. We're never ready to give everyone the vote. We're never ready to switch to solar power. We're never ready for anything, but that's why we, we do it. And then we realize, okay, we're now ready. And I think that's what America realized to a certain extent. You know, it's it's the... It's the backlash that comes after progress. It didn't just happen with Obama. It happens with everything. It happened with gay rights in America. You had a few years that was just amazing, stellar progress made in all directions. The right to marry and, and all of these rights and these, and these liberties were being extended to the LGBT community. And then all of a sudden, the backlash begins and it is fierce because people feel like they are losing. People have been told that they're losing something and they can pin it down to the face of that man. You had this great line that I've actually been thinking about since I read it a number of months ago, where you said, uh, if if you're black in the United States, even after two terms of President Obama, you still feel black. And, and do you think there's been, uh, on the other side of that dynamic you were just outlining, a side of this, a dimension of this, where watching the Obama presidency go forward, it has also shined light on what hasn't changed. It's like, okay, there can be an African-American president, but we are still being killed in our communities by cops. We are still being victimized at higher rates, still have more trouble getting called back for a job. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, 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 it definitely has. It came with it, the illusion, I guess you alluded to it earlier, but it came with the illusion that everything would change. It came with it, the illusion that everything would become different. 
ironically, what happens with black people, and this is, is not just Obama, it happens with, with every single black person. Black people are black people until they achieve a certain level of excellence, and then they become their name. But then somehow that doesn't come with the black community. It's a very strange thing. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. I don't yet. To, to, so, 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 so I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. So um, Will Smith, is Will Smith black or is he Will Smith? Hmm. He's Will Smith. Right? Tiger Woods was Tiger Woods. Yeah, black golfer, but he was Tiger Woods. OJ Simpson has that. I mean, OJ, I mean, he leaned into it heavily, but there is a certain level of, yeah, it's, it's, it's OJ. I find it strange that, you know, like, let's say the bad apples in the black community will be used to tarnish the black community as a whole, but then the stellar performers will be somehow just given a name that is outside of race. They will be given a position that is just somehow they are magically precluded from from race somehow. So it's almost like Barack Obama, yes, oh, that man has become the first black president. Look what you have done for, yes, okay. But in terms of black people, in terms of the country as a whole, people felt like that would extend everywhere. I mean, I know this because the, the anticipation and the excitement spread into Africa. We were like, this is the most exciting time ever. I don't, I don't even know why. We were happy as if... You know, we, we had a president of America. It was just like an exciting moment. But you come to realize that it is progress in that dimension for that person. And yes, for many generations to come who can aspire to that. But then you also realize that it doesn't automatically mean that everyone of that race has progressed at the same rates. So so something you said in there was so interesting and, and depressing. And I haven't thought about it this way, but I want to I wanna see if I understood you. You, you said that... Folks in the black community who maybe don't do as well are held against the black community. Yes. And folks who do extremely well are held apart from the black community. Yes. That it's like the like if you get arrested, you're the rule that proves the rule. And yes, if you exactly. get out, you're the exception that proves the rule. Exactly. That's that's what often happens. You are that's why they always say in black families everywhere, my mom used to say it to me, everyone, you know, is you have to be twice as good because you genuinely do. You you have to be good for yourself and you have to be good for the community as well. Because if you fail, the community fails. It becomes, ah, you see, black man can't get a job. Black man can't, can't get his shit together. Black man won't look after his kids, you know. But then if you do well, then it's like, oh, look at that. A black man who does look after his kids. As opposed to, oh, black men do well. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. It's it's a it's a very damned if you do, damned if you don't attitude. It's a, you know, it's 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 funny enough why I guess some people in the Black Lives Matter movement and 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 a lot of people say, like when it comes to respectability politics, people say, why should I not wear my pants sagging? Why should I not dress the way I dress? And and some people argue, well, if you dress if you dress well, then you will you will be treated well. And and then people point to Martin Luther King and they go, he dressed well, and look how he ended up. So you tell me how dressing changes anything. You know, the nation of Islam, that, that was their, their, their ethos. They went and they dressed really well because they're like, this is how I want to be seen. But then there are other groups who point out and go, yeah, but just because you are well-dressed, we can all be well-dressed. And then the bar will be moved to something else. And it'll be like, well, your hair should be straighter. And then the bar will be moved to something else. And then you come to realize that we're tackling the symptoms and not the cause. I feel like this is actually a really useful thing to talk about because like here we're talking about something way below the level of being shot by the police. You know, this is just how do you live your your daily life? Is it how exhausting is it to have this kind of stuff in your head? I don't I don't know if it's exhausting or if it's just um, it just becomes part of your your psyche. Like 
I was trying to explain this to to some of the writers here at the at the Daily Show. I was going. I think sometimes the conversation in America gets skewed because America has a horrible branding problem. It is ridiculous how off topic conversations become just because of how they are labeled. The easiest way to explain it to my writers is I was going, don't think of it as, as a bias that you have. Just think of it as a, as a blind spot that you have, because, you know, people would say to me, even on the show, if I did, let's say I do three episodes that pertain to racial incidents or or something racially, you know, uh, heated in America, I promise you now my timeline and feedback we'll get on the show will be people saying, oh, really? Are you just going to focus on race? We get it. We get it. How many episodes about race? But if I focus on some congressional issue for a week, people will be like, yeah, yeah, well done. You know, stick it to Congress. I can't believe they're trying to pass that bill. That funding should have been agreed upon. The appropriations are, are ridiculous. And yet I go, what do you mean I've spent too much time talking about race? Because black people are always living race. Whenever I hear people say that, where they go, why do you always have to bring up race? And it's like, because as a black person, you are always living race. It is never brought up in your world. You are always living it. When you are driving or walking down the street and you hear a police siren, I do not know a black person who does not have just a feeling, just a feeling for a moment. Like I know I have it where I go, this could change my entire day. I'll be driving in my car. A police siren goes off behind me. It's a police car. And in that instant, I go... Well, this, I don't know where this, I don't know what's going to happen. And then it drives past me and I'm like, oh, okay. And I, everything is fine. I have my driver's license. I have no problems. I have a, I have a car that's licensed. I have, I, but even I myself go in this moment with that sound could signal, that sound could signal a change forever in my life. And I don't even know what that is. That is being black. That is, it, you live with it at all times you know that at any moment it can happen to you by mistake and that's that's a scary place to live in it's just and it's i don't that's why i say i don't know if it's tiring because it just becomes you know it's it's like a callus on your hands it just it just forms and it is now there it's part of 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 who you are there's been this big debate, which I see a lot just because I, I run uh, an internet publishing website mm-hmm. uh, around microaggressions and political correctness. And folks who, you know, particularly, I think not only, but particularly a lot of sort of like established white writers, but but a lot of just folks on Twitter or whatever, who are really frustrated by this conversation, who don't understand why so much needs to be made about race, who think like the concept of microaggressions themselves are, are, are just absurd. And then on the other hand, you know, I read about it or, or have writers who write about this stuff and for them, it's trying to somehow get at this reality you're describing that a lot of it is not a lot of the problem, a lot of the callous, as you as you vividly put it, is not the big things, the Fergusons. It's just that moment when the, the sirens turn on. Yeah. And that there hasn't really been even a discourse for how to talk about that. And no, now that one is yeah. emerging, people are really people are really frustrated. They really don't like it because they're having to think about it too it's a it's a scary place to be in for a lot of people because imagine if you come from a world where you have no interaction with the police other than good interactions you only know the police to be protecting and serving you even know the police maybe by name you live in a community where these are never issues for you for somebody to come and tell you that a policeman would go out of his way to harm another person i do not blame someone for going that's a complete lie 
Why would the police ever do something like that? Why would they go out of their way to do that? That makes no sense. Police don't do that. And as a black person, you feel crazy because you go, yeah, police stop people all the time. Police search people all the time. Police. But they're like, but why would they just do that? You can just tell the officer they don't have a right to do that. And you, you know, you, you look at someone and you're like, I wish I had your, your, your guts. I can't believe you. You can just say it. It's like, yeah, you just tell the cop, no, so I need to see a warrant and you have no right to this. It's like, man, that's not, we don't live in the same world. We genuinely don't. But it's about engaging with people in a conversation, understanding that it is not them willfully trying uh, to oppose what you are saying or willfully trying to imply that you are lying. But it is people who genuinely have no concept of it happening. And the example I drew was, you remember with the catcalling videos that came from New Mm -hmm. York? I was so troubled. I was like, why wouldn't people believe that police are, are shooting black people? And, and even be, even before shooting, like, you know, we were always talking about shootings, but you don't even understand how much just aggression there is. Like how, you know, just in basic interactions, black people have with the police, the manhandling, the physical abuse, the, you even verbal, you don't even understand that that is starting at that level. And people didn't understand. And I remember when I watched those cat calling videos, that was the first time I did not know that women were going through that, especially in New York. I did not know that. I knew that catcalling existed as a thing, but I honestly thought it was isolated incidents that happened now and again at a construction site. I did not think that a woman could spend every single day of her life in New York City walking through the streets being catcalled every single block that she walks across. That in my mind I could have even said to someone, you're exaggerating, you're lying, that is extreme. You, I'm sorry, that doesn't make sense. And then when I spoke to, to uh, female friends, colleagues, people in my life where I said, is this true? And they're like, oh yeah. And I was like, but you've never told me. And they're like, well, why, why should I tell you? I don't know. It's just how I live. It's, I'm used to it. And then I realized I was ignorant and I, didn't, I just didn't even know it existed. And then I saw the videos and I was like, wow, I guess there's a world out there that I never get to see. And the catcalling will never happen in front of me because I'm a man. So it, it, it makes it even worse. It's not even like I say, if I walk with a woman, I'll see the cat calling. I'll never see it. So at, at some point I just have to believe that it is happening. And the videos help me believe that. And that is the tough position that many white people will be in in America is they'll never see it. It'll never happen in their neighborhoods. It'll never happen. It will only happen in, in another person's world. And the tough thing is you have to believe it. So funny you bring up cat calling. Cause I, I had, very much the same radicalization around that same issue. So I live in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And for years, my female friends would be, they'd have come over to my house or be my girlfriend or, or, or whatever, or whoever it might be. And they would just be talking very offhandedly about these, ter- I mean, these absolutely shocking, very scary incidents of catcalling, right? Yeah. Like walking home late and some guy begins following you and saying, hey, honey, like, why aren't you smiling? And I walked places with these women all the time. Like same women, same night. And not only did I never get cackled, I never saw it happen to them. It yes. was like as soon as I was there, it stopped. Yep. And that also actually, it made it, it made me realize just like how much more sinister it was. Yeah. Right. Not only was I not seeing it, but people were waiting for the moment when the power dynamic would be at its scariest point. And, you know, there's a the, the idea that stuff becomes normalized is in some ways the, the scariest part about it. 
It re- it really is. That is that is the scariest thing. And the scariest thing is how in America the conversation has shifted to becoming a sides issue when really it shouldn't. It shouldn't be a sides thing. It shouldn't be police versus black. It shouldn't be which side of the the law are you on. It's it's not about that. It it truly isn't. I mean, I even see people taking it into the conversation. Well, you have to admit, well, you know, like people, well, maybe black people need to stop killing each other if they don't want the, you're like, how did that conversation even get to that point? Because by saying that you are ignoring that most white people kill white people. Like you kill the people that are closest to you in a community. That's unfortunately how it works. But somehow criminality and black have just been linked in America. I think it, I don't think it's helped. I remember when I first moved here, I was shocked that on the local news every single day, they had to play a clip of a black man who's wanted or suspected of something without fail. I didn't understand what that was. Every single day they'd go, this man is wanted in this area for, for questioning. Sometimes it's not even for the crime. They just go in connection with, if you know this man, please call. This man may have been, may have... They never come back and go, hey, you remember that guy we showed you the video of? Yeah, it wasn't. He wasn't actually the perpetrator. The, the, the attack happened and he just happened to walk down the street like five minutes later. But he wasn't. They never come back and say that. So all you do is sit there in this world where even I, as a first timer in New York, watching the local news every day was like, damn, this is, in, it, this is insane. How like. And then I, I was I realized that imagery is happening to everyone. This this is what you are seeing, and that becomes how you form your reality. It seems to me that something that is true about your job now is that you are immersed in the dysfunctions and just generally the ecosystem of American media in a way that few humans are. Uh, the, yes. the Daily Show. I've always thought that the real I don't want to say villain that maybe is going too far, but the real target of the Daily Show is the media or at least like parts of the media. Yes. What has, within that education, what has surprised you about the media? I think the biggest thing that surprised me in America is how, I guess, how biased they can be according to what their, their ends or, you know, what their ends are. You know, on, on, one hand, on one hand, you have organizations like Fox and MSNBC who, who lean in the direction that they wish to lean in, and they choose to interpret oftentimes a fact in the way that they choose to interpret it, the inflection of voice. Those are all strange things that I, that I, uh, I notice is, is the editorializing of the news. You know, I'm, I come from a world where yes, we have issues with our news in terms of their relation to the government, but news, I, I always grew up in a world where news was just this, a person who tells you the facts and you do not know if they are for or against it. You do not know if they are saddened by what has happened. You do not know if they are angered by what the president has just said. You have no clue. I remember watching old news broadcasts from the U.S. and it was the same thing. The Cronkites and the and the Copples and you'd watch those news anchors in America. And the one thing they did was you didn't know what their point of view was. They just gave you a story. You know, this person has done this. This has happened in this place, and that's it. You didn't know if they were for it, against it, were they angry about it, were they sad? You had no clue. And that's what the news, in essence, in my world was always supposed to be. It was supposed to be a disseminator of facts, and then you were meant to use those facts in the way that you deemed appropriate. Now, I'm shocked by the the very blatant opinion that comes in with the fact. You know, people saying... Yeah, you see what Obama said, Obama coming out and you're like, what is, what is that? What is that inflection in your voice for? That's not news. What are you doing? 
So I'm, I'm interested by there's a lot of nostalgia in that take. And I struggle with this a lot. And I, I think about it because I run Vox and Vox is opinionated. I mean, I tell my writers, like, listen, like you are going to come to conclusions and you have to be straightforward about that and be transparent in how you got there. And I, I, I struggle. So I've been at places like the Washington Post where I was a little bit of an exception to this rule, but that existed more within that tradition of just the facts objectivity. And I've been at places even before Vox, like the American Prospect, that, mm-hmm. that always came from a more opinionated place. And on the one hand, I, I, I do understand the argument you're making there. On the other hand, it always felt to me when I was reading more objective news, but also when I was writing it or, or trying to write it, that it became very hard to tell people the truth. It wasn't hard to tell them facts, but it became very hard to tell them what I thought was the truth. I, I agree with you there, but then, but then we get into the murky world of what is truth. It becomes your truth versus the truth. Right. If we think about, like, let's look at this Hillary uh, saga with the FBI, with the emails. Here you are seeing a classic case of different people's truths. So on one side, you have the Democrats saying, thank you very much. Hillary exonerated. We can move on. The truth is she did nothing criminal. Then you have the Republicans coming out and saying, there you have it, folks. She did criminal things. Were she anybody else, she would have been prosecuted, but they didn't prosecute her. But she did criminal things willfully and put the country at risk. And there you have it. So we have the truth. Both sides, using the same data set, have come to different conclusions because they've both come to their truths. Now, that is fine. That is, I, I agree with that. I love reading Vox for that reason. I like to read and then agree or disagree. But I've never been under the illusion that there is no opinion within that. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, sure. It is when people mask the opinion. It is when people act like they are completely devoid of that. I don't understand. Like, let's rather live in that world where we blatantly say that, hey, I am biased in this direction. Fox doesn't say that. Fox doesn't say we are leaning. In. No, they go, we search for the, the truth. We give you the truth that the mainstream media won't give you. It's like, no, 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 no. If you just said flat out, hey, guys, we're the conservative news, then I'll be like, okay, cool. Now now we know where we all stand. Fair and balanced. Yeah, but when you when you do that, you are implying that the other people are not, and you're implying that you are. And then it, it becomes a completely different discussion. But if we just come out and say, it's the same thing that happened with now with the whole Trump thing with the Supreme Court justice and you're going, mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't understand that idea in America where you must be completely impartial. You must, it's, uh, But no human can be. You have opinions. How can you not have opinions? How can you not have ideas? So what you're saying is you want that person to hide it from us. That's what you want. But we know that these justices are, are left-leaning or right-leaning. We know that. We knew of Scalia. We knew of Ginsburg. We knew of or, you know all, all of these people, whether it's Kennedy, whether it's whoever. We, we know. And yet at the same time, we want to act like we don't know. So what we're saying is we're not saying tell us how you feel. We're saying hide it from us. And that, like it, it, it happens in different places in different ways. And I, I think it's, it's like it needs to be flipped you know, if we're going to say it's a news thing that is straight news, then just let it be news. Don't let us know. If it's going to be opinion, just come out and be honest about it and be like, yo, these are my opinions. And, and that's that. I want to spool the Supreme Court example here for a second because I thought it was so fascinating on this exact dimension. For, for folks who, who were not following that little moment in American politics, uh, Justice Ginsburg, who everybody knows is liberal, <laughs> um, comes out and says to The New York Times and also in a different way to the Associated Press, 
she says, you know, I don't even know what this country would be if we elected Donald Trump. If yes. we elected Donald Trump, I'd have to move to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So, okay, probably unwise for a justice to say that. But then there's this big hue and cry. And, and what's so interesting to me were people were saying, well, now she'll have to recuse herself from a case concerning Donald Trump because she's clearly not objective. And what I thought was so fascinating about that and, and so revealing about the way we think of objectivity as a branding mechanism and not as a like a, a real fact about people yes. was that she clearly held these opinions before she said anything to the New York Times, yes. before she said anything to the AP. Nothing that, had changed yes, exactly. in her head. Nothing had changed in her ability to evaluate the case. In fact, maybe now with her reputation online, she'd actually be more likely to, to try to correct in the other direction. Yep. But you know, what we were mad about wasn't the breaking of a socially useful pretense. Exactly. And I think that's a lot like that happens more. And maybe maybe that's fine, right? Maybe that pretense actually is so socially useful that it should be very harshly sanctioned. Well, here's, but here's, it's weird. here's the thing I have. I mean, let's look at judges. Let's make it even simpler. Let's look at doctors. Doctors have sworn an oath. When a gang member comes into an operating room, a doctor tries his utmost to save that person, regardless of the fact he can see a swastika on the person's neck. He still tries to save the person's life to the best of his or her ability as a doctor. The doctor goes, I'm going to save this person's life. That is what they're supposed to do. This can be a Jewish doctor operating on a person with a swastika on their neck. They still, you, we have to trust you as a doctor. We have to trust that you have taken this oath. We know that you have your beliefs. Everyone should have their beliefs. You know, the Supreme Court justices go and vote just like everybody else. So we know that they are participating in society and making decisions based on the left or the right. But we have to trust that through their oath and, you know, them applying the, the, the letter of the law. And when we read their dissents, you have to trust that these people can be objective when applying the law. And there, there's a difference between that and saying that I myself do not hold any opinions either way. That's, it's not true. And then strangely enough, then the people of the news are expected, people expect the complete opposite of them. Uh, no, no, you can, you can give us your opinion and then masquerade and act like you are completely impartial, when in fact you're not. So what is your favorite news show? And it can be favorite for any reason, but what is the, of all of them, what is the one that you're most delighted when you get to watch? I, I still watch Al Jazeera. I still, I find it streaming online. I still watch that. I mean, it was my favorite when it was here because it was boring and to the point. It just gave you the news. It'll be that. I'll watch BBC news. I mean, I'll find good programs here and there in the US, but I feel like I'm watching a show with personality. I'm getting your opinion on the news as opposed to the news itself. So I would rather read the information or I would rather watch it from a completely impartial source. In terms of covering this sort of news on The Daily Show, something that I am feeling really acutely of late is the gruesomeness of the news cycles we're in. Um, This is a very depressing election, but yesterday some maniac drove a truck through dozens of people's lives in in France. I mean, day after day, night after night, trying to do this, even just covering this stuff in a fairly straightforward way, it it takes a real emotional toll. And what does it take to go out and be funny about it? Because you also have to be experiencing it, I imagine, on on levels where it doesn't feel all that funny to you. Well, you know what I've come to realize in almost a year of doing The Daily Show now is that it's not about what you find funny in the situation. 
it's about using i use comedy now as a as a pressure release valve so i dive in i explore what is happening i respond to the true emotion of it and then i use comedy as my release valve because that's all i can do sometimes i use comedy as a catharsis that just helps me get through the anger the pain the dismay the the disappointment that i have in what's happening but it's less and less about finding the funny i think when i started the show that's what the purpose of 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 the show was in my head and then over time i've come to realize that it it's not particularly that you know i i realize there is a different way i can use my comedy and these are all different tools within within i guess a comedy box but that's that's what i do i i i look for the the truest emotion that i have i think of the situation from a human perspective for instance today we weren't having a show but honestly the thing that broke my heart the most after this this truck incident was obviously the lives that have been lost but more importantly the fact that it feels like every time these attacks happen in essence it feels like these people are winning not because they are winning in terms of a body count or in terms of a war but because they are successfully making us turn on each other that's probably the the most dangerous thing that is happening an attack happens and within 15 minutes maybe even 10 people online are fighting with each other we've even ramped up the morn at least the morning used to go for like a, a 24 hour cycle at least now within 10 minutes it's i told you so and you see and this is why we need and that is why we and if you would just you know and if you stopped and if you said radical islam and if you stopped doing this and if you hadn't done that and it's like really guys is this the time is this what's going to move us forward is this it's now as though we are we are waiting for these attacks to help us prove a point as opposed to working together to find a way to preserve human life it's just become a tool that we use to be right or wrong in an argument and so were i doing a show today that would be the thing i would talk about and then i would find a way to move through that and and i would use comedy i guess to release the pressure where and when i could that's what i need the show to be and that's what a lot of people need the show to be especially during these times so so what i'd love to hear about this in a very like operational way walk me through a joke that you're particularly proud of having appeared on air and how it went from you seeing a news story it doesn't have to be a particularly tragic news story to actually becoming something great that made people laugh that expressed something that you felt was true one was when we were talking about the shootings that happened Alton Sterling uh, and and Castile and it was basically around the notion that these cops body cameras just at the moment of the altercation both became dislodged both of them didn't get anything that the police said they could use immediately and then they walked that back and but the big thing was oh they both became dislodged in the scuffle and and the joke we had was we we came off that and it was just the idea that it was like I well I said because I said that in the morning meeting I said I call bullshit on that because I've seen white people cameras and they never come off <laughs> and then the joke was we just played like a trailer of like you know those GoPro ads where people are falling down mountain sides and snowboarding and crashing through waves and mountain biking and and in every video they come out on the other side and the camera is perfectly intact and people are cheering and screaming and that was that was like it's one of those moments where you get to inject 
comedy in the right way in the you know aiming at the at the specific thing you're trying to to comment on whilst at the same time not taking away the gravity of of your argument that's such a, an interesting way to describe what you get to do i feel like it's become it's become very cliche in the last i don't know decade for people to say that you know the daily show and and places like it are the only outlets able in some ways to tell the truth about what's going on and 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 without backing that sentiment I feel like there's become a very interesting thing where there is an exception to the structure of opinionated versus objective journalism that has emerged within a space of comedy that you can say things that are clearly quite pointed, Mm -hmm. but they activate a different set of defenses or maybe they evade a normal set of defenses. And so they allow you to say things that don't really have a place elsewhere in the media, but, but often need to be said. Yes. And, and your predecessor, John Stewart, I think he, he would often, I think when he got pushed on this really denied he's, Oh, I come on after the, the puppets who, who make prank phone calls. But it always felt to me that that has to be a somewhat tricky thing to balance the balance between what is the best joke or what is the funniest show tonight. And also what do I want to say what do I feel it's important that I do with this platform is that a tension you feel well I've come to the realization that the most important thing for my show is for me to tell the truth that's honestly it is for me to tell the truth it's the same thing you're trying to do at Vox it's what you're saying to your writers it's what I was saying is we need to start telling the truth all the time and I know I use the word starts it's because I was even guilty when I started of avoiding an inconvenient truth you know, looking at something and going, oh, well, I guess that doesn't really apply. It's like, no, you have to go into that. You have to, if you cannot be critical to yourself or to the side that you say you support, then how can you expect the people you are arguing against to do the same? That is a big problem that I notice, especially in American politics, is that both sides gloss over their problems and then quickly pivot and turn to the other side. Ask Paul Ryan if he supports Donald Trump and what he's saying, and Paul Ryan will, within a few sentences, pivot and say, well, look, I think the bigger question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, will Hillary stick to conservative values and will Hillary represent conservative voters and will she? And it's like, we didn't ask you that. We said, do you think Donald Trump would be a good president? Do you think Donald Trump represents your views? Do you think, well, I think, uh, you know, Hillary won't uh, appoint a Supreme Court justice that'll be in line with Republican view. It's like, whoa, we're not, you see again, you're doing, and both sides do it. Both sides do the exact same thing. People aren't critical of their own sides. And it's because it's tough. It's because it's inconvenient. It's because oftentimes you will get more backlash fighting against your friends than you will fighting against your so-called enemies because the defenses are so much higher. You saw it with the whole Bernie Sanders movement. If you dared question the numbers of Bernie's campaign, if you dared question his policies on trade, you would enter into a war that you would dread the day you ever mentioned his name. And yet you were going, but I thought we are all working in the same space. I like Bernie Sanders. But like, doesn't that mean I should hold him to a high standard? Why would I not want to ask him the questions now before his opposition gets a chance to ask him that question? And it's the same thing, essentially, that goes for the police. If you are pro the police, wouldn't you want to hold them to a higher standard? Wouldn't you want them to be 
beyond reproach or as close to that place as possible because you are a fan of what they do. You do respect the position that they hold. So why wouldn't you want that? And I think once once you get to the place where you start being hard on you, on yourself and on the side that you support, then I feel you can move forward. And then essentially what you're doing is leading by example. And I, I, I believe it then opens your world up to then say more about the other side because you can honestly say, I'm trying to fix this everywhere. Trump, I think, has forced this particular trait into a, a, an unusual form of relief, particularly for Paul Ryan. But to the, the broader point you're making is I actually think about it a lot and I think about it with, with our writers and, and my competitors and so on. It seems to me that part of the problem there is people end up in information sources that ultimately give them a systematically skewed view of both their side and the other side. Yeah. The Pew Research Group, which is amazing, amazing polling, uh, has these massive studies on polarization and it's shown that over the past, since 94, which is when they began doing these surveys, the percentage of Americans who say they really hate and fear the other side has just gone up incredibly dramatically. Yeah. And something I think about when I look at that is the way in which if you are a liberal reading liberal websites, you see stories that are not untrue, but are often unrepresentative about the right. It's like the worst thing a Republican yep. congressman said that day. Not the median thing a Republican congressman said that day, but the worst thing. Yep. And of course, vice versa. If you're checking out Breitbart, you're you're getting the often like the worst thing a, a Democrat said that day. And people's fear in that sense is very rational. But but what they're ending up doing, these stories can be true and they can still be uh, in, in terms of the aggregate picture they paint misleading. And to what you were saying a second ago, I think that is the real challenge there. It is creating and curating an information diet, whether you're a writer or a, a, a journalist or a reader, that gives you a sense of what your side is fucking up. Because oftentimes the people you like best maybe don't, maybe don't feel they have the incentive just in a day where they have a limited amount of time to yes, find exactly. those stories. Exactly. That, that becomes the issue. It goes like, well... I mean, my side has a tiny little issue. That side has a giant, giant situation that they've messed up completely. How can I spend time talking about my thing? But you, at some point you need to. Otherwise, you create the image that your side is perfect and the other is not. I mean, I assume you guys watch a lot of Fox News over there. But what are the, what are the sites you read? We, do, we don't actually. Oh, really? We don't. I, here's another thing. I don't understand that concept. I don't understand why I would watch a news source that I believe is biased and you know like for instance if they're bringing on after cop shootings if they're bringing on Furman to comment on that and give us opinion on the police this is the same guy who in the OJ trial I mean they exposed the man who basically said he needed to be relieved from the police force for being extremely racist how can you bring him on as an expert so those types of things once they happen repeatedly I go why would I watch this so I'm going to watch Fox News to get angry if I know that a source is one that I cannot rely on, then why why subject myself to that? Then what sources do you read to or watch to check your own biases, to see stories that are maybe not the ones that you would... That Every, you would everything, everything. You know, I, I, I mean, the, there are people in the building who will watch or they'll see stories on Fox News. I'll still watch, like, let's say a Megyn Kelly special or something that comes on if she's going to be interviewing somebody. You know, I'll read an article on Breitbart's I will, I will go, I will skim through the stuff. Sometimes I compare them, you know, in my office, I have all of the news sources playing. I have Fox, MSNBC, 
and um, CNN playing side by side, sometimes just to see how differently they're reporting the same story. It'll be interesting to to get like pieces of the facts from from different angles. You know, you, you go like, oh, wow, you're all s- reporting the exact same story, but what you're saying about it is completely different, or you are approaching the fact from a very different angle. And then I just read every single source that I can. You know, it's New York Times, it's Vox, it's... Uh, you know, I've got Guardian, Washington Post, even Uproxx, uh, Huffington Post, AP, Reuters, Google News. I, I try and absorb from as many different places as possible, um, you know, Atlantic, just because it's just it's information. I can go through all of that and then I and then I fact check it myself. I just go into neutral sources that are that are not news that are not being topical and then i try and verify the things for myself when i did cable news for a while uh, people always had that thing where they had all three networks on in their offices and it, it made me feel like i was about to have a nervous breakdown i do not understand what ends up in people's head where that can be around them and and it doesn't it doesn't somehow destroy their psyche oh no it's I, I enjoy it it's actually it's actually fun as long as the as long as the volume is off as long as you mute the TVs and then I just have the uh, closed captioning on and then I just sit there like I'll you know I'll be working and then I'll glance over and I'll see a breaking news story and I'll see how all three of them are reporting it you know it's uh it's just interesting to go through i I remember there was a point where Fox, for instance, was doing the best reporting in terms of not reporting Donald Trump. It was really interesting. It's when they were going through their period where they were having that, that huge fight with him. And, you know, MSNBC and CNN had their cameras affixed on an empty podium and, you know, the lower third, Trump soon to speak and Trump may speak and Trump, and everyone was just Trump, Trump. And Fox was just reporting on something happening in the Middle East and they were reporting on some stories. And, and it was interesting to see how they had actually switched over to better journalism, I would say, because they were they did not care for the Trump ratings and they did not care to be part of his sideshow because they were having a fight with him. And it just it made them for that time a better news network. What's the best piece of advice you've received? What is the best piece of advice? Whoa, wow. The best piece of advice I received was probably from Dave Chappelle just in conversation uh, was before I started the show. And then I think again, a few months into the show, and he said to me, whatever you do, don't let them steal your joy. And that I've applied not just to my show, but to life. Don't let people steal your joy. Don't let people convince you that you are not happy. Don't let them try and bring you into a world where you are miserable with them. How are you able to do that? just by remembering, you know, perspective, going home, talking to friends, realizing that a lot of the time these are champagne problems. If I have a problem with a TV show in the United States of America, that that's a champagne problem to have. <laughs> 20 years ago my problem was the fact that I didn't have a, a flushing toilet. That was a that was a problem. 25 years ago the problem I had was the fact that I couldn't be seen in the streets with my mom or dad because then one of them would be arrested and I would be taken away to an orphanage. That was a problem. So for me, it's reminding myself of the level or the degree of problem. I go, oh man, this is, these are not things that I will allow to like allow someone to steal my joy. Someone tweeted me something horrible. It's like, yeah, whatever. I would worry more if the the real people in your world were saying horrible things and Twitter was saying nice things, then you should worry. (laughs) But in my world, you know, real people are are good people and then Twitter people can be whatever they want. What are three books you've read that have mattered to you, have influenced you and that you think others should read? 
Three books. Uh, let's see. Um, I would have to say one of those is a book by Esther Perel. I'm trying to remember the name. It's a fantastic book because it's about relationships, but really it just goes to the idea of people thinking that their world is the only world that they live in. You know, people thinking that there's only one way to do things. Tanahasi Coates, Between the World and Me, that was a really powerful book to read. Just because of his, I don't want to say pessimism, but... Oh, Esther Perel was mating in captivity. Uh, I'm trying to think of what it was with Tanasi's book. It was just a, it was just an honest point of view, you know. It wasn't optimistic. It wasn't. It was just a powerful piece of literature that really changed my life. And then, I mean, it's cliched and and simple, I guess, but it would be Freakonomics, just a simple book that uh, expands your mind, shows you that sometimes the issue you're trying to deal with. The cause of the issue may not be directly related to what you think it is. And you have to try and apply your mind and track it down to its source and find the confluence of factors. And that's where intersectionality comes in. And I think when you think of the world like that, when you think of all issues like that, you think of police shootings now like that, you, you know, it's funny because the, when it struck me again, when the Dallas police chief was giving his, when he was giving an interview and he said, the police are doing too much. Society has relied on the police to do too much. Police have become the people who help you raise your kids. If you're a single mother, you call the police because your kid is doing something wrong. If you're a school teacher that can't control a kid, you bring in the police. If you are having issues in a relationship, you call the police. If your neighbor plays his radio loud, you call the police. The police are doing too much. And I never thought of it like, I never thought of that world. I was just like, yeah, actually, how do we expect these people to be doing well when they're doing too much and you know it's we're using them in the wrong ways as well and i guess you know freakonomics was one of those books that helped me realize that one issue could have multiple influences on why it's going wrong trevor noah thank you very very much thank you so much ezra That was Trevor Noah. Thank you to him so much for spending the time on the show. I I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it too. Thank you to you for being here and listening to the show. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and I'll see you next week.